Cool. Thanks. Boo-boo. Hush. You're going to get the boot if you don't shut up. <laughs> You're so mean. I love you. Mama? I love you, but I'm going to kick you out. Can you come get these babies? Okay. Yeah, you're very cute. Look, you've got big eyes. Yeah, you're great. Okay, I'll see you later. We can do this all day. Episode 20. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 Review. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And I know on most of y'all's calendar, it's only going to have been, I don't know, maybe a month since you listened to our review of Spider-Man Homecoming. But on my calendar and Emily's calendar, it's been a good two months just about, hasn't it? Yeah, since recording anyway. Since recording. So for us, it's the new year. <laughs> belated, much belated Happy New Year to you, Emily. I was about to say it's a new year for them too. It's the new year for them too, but I think we wish the audience Happy New Year on the Spider-Man review, even though we recorded it in December, knowing that it wasn't going to drop until sometime in January. So, well, if we're saying it again, we're saying it again, because we love you all that much. We doubly wish you a Happy New Year. And we finally have a new show for you. It's our review of Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. We have, since our time lag is starting to, to get a little longer than it used to be, not a whole lot of MCU news, but there are a couple of items. So we're going to fire up the, the ticker tape machine. I guess the biggest news right now in the MCU, the, a week or so ago, the first kind of long trailer for Moon Knight dropped. And that show is going to drop on Disney+. Plus on March the 30th with uh, Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke. Uh, so I'm very, very much looking forward to that. I think we're going to go to some really interesting dark places in the MCU. Although, quite ironically and quite tragically, just a few days after that trailer dropped, Gaspard Ulliel, who plays Midnight Man in the show, uh, died in a, in a freak skiing accident just this past January. So that's a piece of sad news. But uh, as far as I know, you know, the show is still going to go on, and I, I look forward to seeing what he did in that role. You mean this January, like the one that just happened, right? The one that just, uh, on our calendar, just happened. So, yeah, it was literally days after that trailer dropped. It was really quite a stunning piece of news there. Also, so, I think, aren't they filming Black Panther 2 again? Didn't they start back up? I think they did. I don't, you, you probably have more details on that. I think you've been following this a little more than I have. Supposedly, they came to some sort of, you know, agreement, accord. The mouse got her. Oh, the, 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 yes, the, the mouse. The, the almighty mouse. mouse. The Almighty Mouse he did something. Well, first of all, you know, apparently she has recovered. Sounds like she had a nasty injury while filming back in, in Boston back in August, I think it was. And it, it sounds like she did have a lot of medical problems related to that. So, you know, we're glad she's okay. And I know it was a, it was a really rough recovery. But yeah, there were some, uh, how should we say, vaccine issues also in play. And uh, yes, the mouse apparently said something to her and... She is now back on set filming, so they will get that fi that movie finished. <laughs> Heaven knows if she's going to be in third in the third one, but they're still on track to release this coming November. So that is very very good news indeed. And now it's on to our main event, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, which opened up 
in the U.S. on May the 5th, 2017. It stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Vin Diesel, Bradley Cooper, Michael Rooker, Karen Gillan, Kurt Russell, Palm Clementiev, and Sean Gunn. The film was written and directed by James Gunn. At the box office, on a budget of $200 million, the movie grossed $863.8 million. Didn't quite make the billion-dollar club like a lot of the other Marvel movies up to that point, but let's not kid ourselves here. That's a pretty big haul. And it was, you know, all things considered a rousing financial success in terms of box office rankings. It was number 12 out of 27. I don't know where I got that 27 number from because I only made 25 movies. There may have been some re-releases thrown in there. But it's at number 12, uh, just ahead of Thor Ragnarok and just behind Spider-Man Homecoming, ironically, in terms of box office numbers. Not much to say about the background of this film. The first film was so well-received by both audiences and critics that a sequel was pretty much inevitable. Our overall impressions of the film, I guess we can start with numbers of the rankings. I had originally had this film at number 22, and I don't know, I've decided to move it up to 20, just ahead of Avengers Age of Ultron and just behind Eternals. I, I know the more I see this movie, the more I like it. it it's still got some problems, but you know, I remember when I first saw it, I didn't like it very much at all, but I've watched it a number of times since then. I've warmed up to it over the years, and that's why I've decided to move it up a little bit to number 20. Because I hadn't really seen either of the Guardians movies before we did this, I finally figured out what it is about these movies that I don't like, and I think it is the humor. Like, the witty one-liners just don't work on me when it comes to the Guardians. For whatever reason, I wish it was darker, because the plot is pretty dark. I mean, especially this movie, like, we'll get to it. But there's a lot of death and destruction. I feel like the ha-ha funny joke jokes just don't work like they do in some of the other movies that I think are, you know, like, a lot better. The plot of this movie, I would say, is as equally dark as some of the stuff that happens with Captain America. And there are jokes in the Captain America movies that just work better. Like, it seems like they fit. And it seems like with this movie, they felt like they had to be jokesters because it's the Guardians. But... Some really intense stuff happens in this one. Um, so for the rankings, I pushed Thor, The Dark World, Iron Man 2, and Incredible Hulk back a few and put this one at number 20 as well. And it's so it's right between Ultron and Thor, The Dark World. And again, it's because those three movies that are in the back actively bothered me and this movie was just there. Like, I'm not that upset about the humor and the darkness not matching. I just don't care. And I think I would care if they handled it better because I really liked that darkness. Like, you know me, I like to watch people suffer. And I think I would have liked it better had the, like, weird humor that didn't really fit in there. You could also phrase it that there were just 19 other films that you liked more. I don't think any of these films are necessarily bad, but... Oh, no, I think some of them are objectively bad. Like more than others. (laughs) Some of these movies are objectively bad. (laughs) All right, well. Okay, well. The mouse doesn't speak for me, and the mouse can't stop me. I don't think I was bothered as much as you were by the stuff in this movie that you didn't like. Uh, I do agree that this film is much darker than the first one. This one is obviously a lot more personal for everyone involved, all the characters, so the stakes are higher. Somehow I think this film is actually funnier than the first one. I think all of the Drax... And the Drax Mantis stuff is is laugh out loud hilarious. And maybe that's elevated the humor level of the film in my mind. I think what really detracts from the film is how much James Gunn tries to cram into the movie. I think it's just the sheer volume of stuff 
he tries to to insert there. There's like a half a dozen subplots in the movie, and sometimes it's hard to follow. You know, you've got the conflict between the Guardians and the Sovereign, the conflict between the Guardians and Ego, the conflict between Yondu and Taserface's mutineers, and you've got a conflict between Gamora and Nebula. And, you know, you've got the usual infighting among the Guardians themselves. It's a lot to keep up with. And I think having to mentally keep track of everything takes me out of the film quite a bit. The first film was just so much more solid to me. But there's still a lot of good stuff in this one, I think. I like the opening title sequence a lot. I've already said how much I like Drax and Mantis. I like the music in this one, both the score and the popular songs, better than the first film. Uh, I do like seeing them come together over the course of this film, despite being physically and metaphorically separated for much of it. The first film ends with them becoming friends, this one ends with them becoming a family, and I think that motif really works in this one. Our story starts in rural Missouri in 1980. Meredith Quill and a young man are driving in a late 70s model Ford Mustang. I'm a Mustang guy, and I just have to say, I think those were some of the worst ones they ever made. Ugh. Yeah, that's a pretty ugly car. <laughs> late 70s Mustangs. Ugh. Anyhow, they're joyfully singing along to the strains of Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass, and they stop at a Dairy Queen, and the man takes Meredith out into the woods and shows her an alien plant that he has put in the soil, telling her excitedly that soon the plant will spread all over the universe. I'm just going to put this here, and obviously this doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but Meredith has a really southern accent for Missouri. Like, she sounds like we're supposed to be in Alabama instead of next door to Kansas. It is a pretty thick accent. I, in fact, it, did sound, it sounded almost comically thick. Like, do people think that Missouri's part of the South? Uh, I think a lot of people do, especially if you're, especially if you're from the Mid-Atlantic, like me. Missouri's not from the South. Just an FYI to everybody here. This coming from the native Texan and the four-year Tennessee resident. Six years. Two six-year Tennessee resident. Excuse me. Fast forward thirty-four years on the home world of a people known as the Sovereign. The Guardians of the Galaxy have been hired to protect the sacred and very valuable Anulax batteries from Abelisk an interdimensional monster that's really hard to kill. Abelisk arrives moments later, and the Guardians engage it, while Groot, the sapling we saw in the end of the first movie, having grown to about the age of a human toddler, cranks up ELO's Mr. Blue Sky on the sound system, and the opening titles roll. It is so on-brand to have a Guardians movie open up with Mr. Blue Sky playing, as the Guardians are trying unsuccessfully, I might add, to kill this monster, while Baby Groot dances away, completely oblivious to the battle going on around him. On this most recent rewatch, I watched the titles twice. I've never done that before. The first time through, I focused squarely on Groot, and the second time through, I paid attention to the battle with Abelisk. And I thought it was quite clever how James Gunn plotted out the whole Baby Groot dancing sequence while in the background, he's got this, you know, Lovecraftian behemoth wreaking chaos and destruction on this planet and the guardians are getting their clocks cleaned also just as a note i remember reading somewhere uh, gun apparently really wanted to use mr blue sky in the first film but for whatever reason it didn't work out so when he approached jeff lynn legendary producer songwriter yellow founder guitarist lead singer about using the song in the second movie lynn was hesitant no, for fear of getting burned again. Gunn says that he made Lynn, and I quote, an offer he couldn't refuse, and hence the song made it into the film. I'm kind of wondering what that offer consisted of, but either way, it made it in. Quill notices a small cut on Abelisk's neck, so he and Rocket fly up with their jetpacks and get the creature to look up while Gamora uses her sword, her rifle is broken, to slice the creature open from the cut, killing it. Ew. <laughs> Yes! I have single-handedly vanquished the beast! Is it also not completely on brand for Drax 
to jump into the creature's mouth and attempt to kill it from the inside. And I think it's even funnier when he claws his way out from the creature's disgusting innards and he's laughing thinking he killed it and then Groot throws something at him and he's like, what? The Guardians are granted an audience with the Sovereign High Priestess Aisha, who thanks them for putting their lives on the line so that her citizens wouldn't have to. Apparently each one of them is designed to exact specifications by the Sovereign community and born from a birthing pod. I told you about this earlier, but I recently finished a middle grade sci-fi book that had characters basically exactly like the Sovereign, and now, given all the other pop culture references in that book, I'm wondering if the author was also a Guardians fan now. In return for their services, the Sovereign hand over Nebula, who they apprehended attempting to steal the Anulax batteries. There is a considerable bounty on her head back on Xandar, and the Guardians intend to collect it. As they depart in the Milano, Rocket covertly steals some of the batteries. As the Milano flies away, Gamora and Quill exchange a few words about his flirting with High Priestess Aisha moments earlier, leading to Drax's speech to Quill about there being two types of beings in this universe, those who dance and those who do not, and about how he just needs to find a woman who is, quote, pathetic, like him. Some of Drax's best lines in all of the MCU are right here in this movie. And that chat with Peter was just a warm-up. Also, thank you, James Gunn, for introducing the world to Lakeshore Drive by Aliota Haynes' Jeremiah, the song that they're playing when the Milano takes off. Uh, it's a song that I'd certainly never heard of before. It's a song I think most people never heard of before. Apparently, you only would have heard of it if you'd grown up in the upper Midwest in the 1970s, which I did not. James Gunn apparently did. It's now one of my favorite songs on the soundtrack. I was about to say, um, you did not grow up in the upper Midwest in the 70s unless you've been lying to me for f four, five, five years. I didn't make my first trip to the Midwest and the upper Midwest until, God, like 19, 1999, 2000. Before long, a massive sovereign fleet attacks the Milano, Aisha having been insulted by the theft of the batteries. There's a jump point to the planet Berhart where they can land and seek refuge but it's 47 clicks away and they have to fly through an asteroid field to get to it. Can we put the bickering on hold until after we survive this massive space battle? I love that line. And I love how in the middle of a space battle, Quill and Rocket are fighting over who's the better pilot and they keep taking the controls of the Milano from each other like little kids fighting over a toy. Like, it's mine! No, it's mine! No, it's mine! We get Drax's crack about him having famously huge turds, which of course gets me every time because I love potty humor. Also, sci-fi TV fans from the late 90s and the aughts may remember Ben Browder, who plays the Sovereign Admiral from the TV shows Farscape and uh, the last two seasons of Stargate SG-1, both shows that I enjoyed. With the Milano's weapons down, Drax puts on a spacesuit, grabs a very big gun, tethers himself to a bulkhead, and jumps outside the ship through a hole made by the Sovereign, while Quill and Rocket were arguing over who should fly. He's able to destroy the last Sovereign craft pursuing them. Or so he thinks, as another swarm of Sovereign craft somehow manage to circumvent the asteroid field and are about to blow the Milano to Kingdom Come, when they are instantaneously destroyed by a strange egg-shaped craft with a guy riding on top of it. The severely crippled Milano makes it to the jump point and crashes on Bearheart. Yeah, it's kind of fun watching Drax get bounced around while they're crashing in a forest, but how in the world did he and Gamora, both of them just hanging out the back of the ship, survive that? Like, are we just supposed to chalk that one up to suspension of disbelief because comics? I mean, we're in outer space with a bunch of aliens and a talking raccoon. I think we left our belief back in Missouri. I don't think we're in Missouri anymore. <laughs> Not long after the dust settles from the crash, the egg-shaped ship lands on Bearheart near the wreckage of the Milano. A hatch opens, 
and from it emerges a woman with antenna on her forehead and a significantly aged version of the man seen with Meredith Quill in the beginning of the film. He identifies himself as Ego, and he says that he is Quill's father. Meanwhile, on the planet Contraxia, a number of Ravager factions have arrived for little R&R, including Stakar O'Gord, played by Sylvester Stallone, a high-ranking Ravager, and Yandu Odanta. The two have a heated exchange, as Stakar has exiled Yandu from the Ravagers for violating the Ravager code by trafficking in children when he abducted the young Peter Quill many years ago. We see many of Yandu's crew quietly grumbling about how he went soft on them by letting Quill betray them. Shortly after Stakar departs, High Priestess Aisha arrives with a proposition for Yandu. I know you have, like, vaguely more serious things to say, but I do like that bit with um, the red carpet or whatever for Aisha. Oh, yeah. When it gets caught and the one person's trying to, like, pull it, you know, and the other one's just like... It is a pretty funny sight gag. It kind of, since right now in our timeline, the Olympics just started today, and you hardly ever see mistakes in the opening ceremonies just because there's so much going on, but imagine if somebody did make a big mistake like that, where, like, the rope gets caught or whatever and something's wrong and you're just like, well, this is how it is. The flag gets stuck going up the pole. Or yeah, or somebody like drops it, or you fall over. Like, I can imagine <laughs> knowing that that's going to live in infamy forever. <laughs> that well, made this know. funny, because obviously it's just a bunch of ravagers. Who cares what they think? But I imagine to Aisha, it was like, <gasps> this was my moment. During our review of the first Guardians movie, I may or may not have pointed out that the Guardians you see in the MCU are actually based on the second iteration of the Guardians of the Galaxy in the comics. The first iteration of the Guardians in the comics gallivanted around the cosmos in the 31st century, and a number of the characters from those comics are making their MCU debuts here. There's Sylvester Stallone, of course, making his debut as Stakar, a.k.a. Starhawk. We also have his first officer, Martinex, played by Michael Rosenbaum, who genre TV fans may remember as the guy who played Lex Luthor on Smallville. They were both members of the first Guardians team in the comics. One of their adversaries is Taserface, who is introduced in this scene and is played by Chris Sullivan of the show This Is Us. Stakar kind of looks like an older Oscar Isaac, and I gotta say I'm into it. Although Oscar Isaac already does kind of look like an older Oscar Isaac, you know, like the salt and pepper kind of stuff. But does he look like Sylvester Stallone? No, not yet. But that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that he could one day, and I'm into it. I was kind of thinking how Oscar Isaac looked in Dune. I feel like they definitely aged him up in Dune. Oh, I'm sure they aged him up in Dune, but I don't I mean, but, and you know, I, and I really liked it, I gotta say. The thing that I thought was so funny about Dune is, you know, the amount of hair that was on Oscar Isaac and the amount of hair that wasn't on Jason Momoa. I was honestly so busy looking at Oscar Isaac that I didn't really notice anybody else. Back on Bearheart, Ego explains to Quill that he hired Yondu to retrieve him after his mother died and that he has no idea why Yandu chose to keep him instead. He offers to take Quill and the rest of the Guardians to see his homeworld. While Ego goes off to relieve himself, and Quill and Gamora go off to discuss Ego's offer, Ego's companion, Mantis, introduces herself to Drax. After her noble but not well-executed attempt to smile at Drax is rebuffed by him, she tells him that she was raised alone on Ego's planet, and that she doesn't fully understand the intricacies of human interaction. I've said in a couple of previous episodes that I think Dave Bautista gives one of his best performances of Drax in this movie, and a lot of those great moments are his interactions with Mantis, who is played wonderfully by Palm Clementief, making her MCU debut. 
this is their first such interaction, and I think it's such a great foretaste of what's to come later. It's just so much fun watching two people who, for very different reasons, have absolutely no social skills whatsoever try to interact with each other. First she tries to smile very awkwardly, and then Drax very awkwardly tells her that she doesn't do it very well. And then Drax tricks her into trying to pet Rocket, and Rocket tries to bite her. And Drax just starts roaring with laughter, while Mantis is quite clearly distressed. As she watches Drax continue to laugh, she starts laughing too, and says she likes it. It's like, oh, he's laughing, so I guess I should laugh too. It's just a great exercise in human interaction between two non-humans who don't know how to interact. And then the scene is punctuated by that eye roll from Nebula, who clearly can't stand being around any of these idiots. Isn't there a joke or something later about how Gamora really only had two options and they were Peter Quill the idiot and Drax the weirdo or whatever? Isn't there a joke about that? You think you may be confusing it with Endgame. Yeah, no, not in this movie, but in general, like later. Yeah, the still alive Gamora. This is him? Yeah, yeah. It was either him or a tree. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it wasn't even Drax. It was the tree. Quill expresses his doubts about Ego to Gamora, how he just showed up out of nowhere and suddenly wants to be his dad, and how it could be some sort of trap, given how many enemies they've accumulated since the Guardians got together. Perhaps somewhat to his surprise, and maybe to the audience's as well, Gamora encourages him to go with Ego. She recalls a story Quill told her about him going around with a picture of David Hasselhoff in his pocket when he was a kid, telling all the other kids that Hasselhoff was his dad. He tells her how badly he wanted to be like the other kids, who got to play catch with their dads. And that's why Gamora thinks he needs to go, in case Ego really is his dad. What if this man is your Hasselhoff? Again, I've never seen this movie except for watching it for the show, so I don't trust Ego. Like, I trust that he could be Peter's dad, obviously, because we met him on Earth back at the right time. But I obviously don't trust that he means well. I mean, I could even accept that this is someone pretending to be Ego for the sake of doing something to Peter and the other Guardians. Also, of course, I don't know anything about Mantis because I haven't seen the rest of this movie. But that is kind of terrible that they would let Mantis grow up alone. Like, what is going on on Ego's planet? I love the scene not only because it's a great character moment for both Peter and Gamora, but because it's such a great example of how James Gunn is able to successfully combine, I think, you know, the goofy, quirky stuff with the heartfelt stuff in a way that only the Guardians of the Galaxy can present it. On the one hand, you've got Peter expressing this deeply personal desire to find and connect with his father as well as Gamora very sincerely telling him how much she wants him to have that experience. And in that same conversation, you also get the absolute absurdity of the David Hasselhoff story and Gamora deadpanning that, you know, if Ego turns out to be evil, that they can just kill him. It was just such a very, very Guardians moment. Well, if he turns out to be evil, we'll just kill him. (laughs) It's just so casually. And so the team separates. Quill, Gamora, and Drax go off with Ego and Mantis, while Groot and Nebula stay behind with Rocket as he tries to repair the Milano. As their ship departs, Quill sees Ego lying down in a bed as Mantis waves her hand over his forehead, seemingly putting him to sleep. En route to Ego's planet, Guardians ask Mantis what purpose her antennas serve. She replies that she believes they have something to do with her empathic abilities. When she touches someone, she can sense their feelings. She touches Peter and then declares out loud to all present, that he has romantic, sexual feelings for Gamora. As Peter and Gamora reel in embarrassment, Drax howls with laughter. She just told everyone your deepest, darkest secret. You must be so embarrassed. I think this is the only scene in the entire movie that I knew about and had seen before actually watching this movie for real to get the context. That's probably because they used it in the trailer. 
Yeah, I can't remember anything else about the trailer, just this part. He then insists that Mantis read him, which she does and declares that she's never felt such humor. Gamora threatens to break her jaw if she tries to touch her. Mantis says that she is also capable of temporarily altering people's feelings, comforting the sad, making the stubborn compliant. But she mainly uses it to help Ego sleep, as he apparently spends many a night wide awake thinking about, quote, his progeny. James Gunn has spoken at length about his use of contemporary music in the Guardians films and how each song in the soundtrack is significant and relevant to the scene in which it's heard. There are two songs in particular that feature prominently in this film. The first one was Brandy, and the second one is Fleetwood Mac's The Chain, which is played as the Guardians split up. I really like how it underscores the tense nature of that scene. Peter feels conflicted about ego, and Nebula doesn't want to be stuck on Bearheart with Rocket. Groot is sad that Gamora, Peter, and Drax are leaving. Peter and Gamora are irritated that Drax is bringing all of his stuff with him because he doesn't want Groot playing with it. And Rocket just goes out of his way to insult Peter as he departs. Everyone is still ticked at Rocket for stealing the batteries in the first place. And Gamora is still ticked at Peter and Rocket for their little pissing contest during their escape from the Sovereign. So everyone is mad at each other, and the Guardians are physically and seemingly emotionally detaching from each other. And yet here we have Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks singing that we must never break the chain. And then, of course, we get the, that scene on Ego's ship. I think it's just really funny. <laughs> do me! Do me! <laughs> it's, Drax is just so, he's so funny in that scene. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Meanwhile, darkness settles over Bearheart, and we see Kraglin, Taserface, and the rest of Yondu's crew quietly encircle and close in on the Milano. Apparently, Aisha's proposition consisted of hiring them to recapture the Guardians. Fortunately, Rocket anticipates this and has already laid a number of booby traps which incapacitate a number of Yandu's men. I don't know why, but Little Groot's face when he heard what was happening outside the ship when that guy got knocked out and like shot his gun off in the air a bunch of times got me so bad. Like I laughed so hard when I saw that. I much prefer Little Groot over Older Groot. The facial expressions on, on Baby Groot are pretty funny. I love when he gets mad. He's like, <laughs> He starts hitting stuff. Unfortunately, Yondu himself gets the drop on him and captures him. He says he put a tracking device on the Milano before it left Xandar at the end of the last movie. How convenient. Overhearing the ruckus outside, Nebula implores Groot to let her go so she can intervene, nominally on Rocket's behalf. Yondu then stuns everybody by declaring that instead of taking the Guardians to Aisha, he'll simply take the batteries from Rocket. They're worth about a quarter million, whatever currency they use in these parts, and walk away. Taserface and many other members of the crew object, seeing how Aisha was ready to pay a full million for the capture of the Guardians. Even Kraglin, every Yondu's most steadfast supporter, points out to Yandu that every time Quill betrays them, he lets him get away. Quote, like none of the rest of us matter. Yandu counters that it would be suicide to aid and abet in the death of the Guardians of the Galaxy, as the entire Nova Corps would hunt them down. Taserface takes advantage of the moment and challenges Yandu's position as leader. Moments later, lots of guns are pointed at each other as folks take sides. Rocket is trying to talk his way out of it, naturally. Just as Yandu is about to make his move, Nebula, who's been freed by Groot, appears incapacitates Yandu by shooting the control fin for his arrow off of his head and then stuns Rocket. I don't particularly like Rocket much in this movie, but I do like him in this scene. He gets some good action in the fight with Yandu's crew. The bit with him messing with them by bouncing them around with the anti-grav mines while Glenn Campbell's Southern Knights is playing, I think is kind of funny. I do like uh, his line, there's got to be a way we can reach a peaceful resolution. Or even a violent one with me standing over there. As for the rest of the scene, I gotta admit, 
as much as I understand what Yondu is trying to do, if I were a member of that crew, I'd be kind of pissed too, suddenly finding out I'd have to settle for less money than originally promised. The fact that Kraglin opposes this decision, I think, is significant because A, he's always been Yondu's most trusted lieutenant and supporter, and B, while I'm sure most of Yandu's other opponents are doing so for the money, you get the sense that Kraglin genuinely feels that not taking Aisha's bounty is not good for the crew. I mean, at this point, I don't really understand Yandu. Like, I can see that he cares about Peter, and I can understand why his crew is upset by this. Although I'm surprised they even realized it, given how inept they are. But <laughs> why? I would guess that he's actually Peter's dad. You know, like, if I didn't know what I know. And for some reason, just lied to everyone else. But then why would Novacorp say he was so special? Like, Yondu is clearly, to me anyway, just a regular run-of-the-mill alien. Ego's ship lands on Ego's planet, which is revealed to be this amazingly lush, colorful, magical place. He reveals himself to be a celestial, a godlike creature that has existed for millions of years. Nowhere from the first movie is the head of a dead celestial. Those of you who have seen Eternals will undoubtedly know a thing or two about celestials. Yeah, okay, so I didn't say anything at first, but he definitely gave off celestial vibes, and I'm glad I was right. He knows not where he came from, only that he was alone, but he learned how to manipulate the matter around him, and thus he created the very planet that they're all standing upon. He decided to seek out other life, and thus created a humanoid-like form for himself, which he used to discover a purpose. He eventually came to Earth, met and fell in love with Meredith Quill, and together they produced Peter. Ego had been searching all over for him, ever since Yondu took him from Earth. When he heard of the Earther who held an Infinity Stone without dying, he knew it must be Peter. Peter asks him why he left, but he doesn't answer right away. Because there's something very wrong with him, and he's a big, egotistical jerk. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> On Yondu's ship, Taserface and the mutineers tie up Yondu, Rocket, and Groot, and execute all those who rallied to Yondu's defense on Bearheart. This was a really dark moment, I thought. I kind of thought it might get a little bit more text in the plot from it. Like, it's pretty aggressive to just kick guys off your ship to float to their death in space, but also how all the mutineers were laughing and mocking them and treating it like a game, and the whole time Yondu was just there, not even trying to help his own guys, like the guys who stuck with him. It's one of a, at least a couple of very dark scenes. Watching them abuse Groot was kind of hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's that like, was really sad. What the hell? You would do this to a baby? Because he's the equivalent of like a three or four-year-old. You know, pour beer all over a, all over a four-year-old and beat him up and kick him around. And it's just, it's just ugh. And I was kind of thinking to myself, man, I hope they get theirs. <laughs> it kind of makes me wonder just how badly they treated Peter. It's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. I just thought that now when you were like, yeah, Groot's a baby. And I was like, well, Peter was only eight. But it's funny because, you know, Peter complains a lot about the other Ravagers. It was always him talking about how, you know, Yondu threatened to eat him or feed him to the crew. And yet it was never, he never spoke of threats of violence or violence from the other members of the crew. But, you know, given what they did to Groot, yeah, it's not a very far-flung conclusion. After a brief interlude in which Rocket taunts Taserface about his name, Nebula convinces Taserface to keep the three prisoners alive for now, as there is a bounty on Yondu by the Kree, and Aisha's bounty on the two Guardians. For her assistance, the Ravagers give Nebula a 10% cut and a ship with which she can go find Gamora and kill her, before going on to kill her dad, Thanos. One of the things I like about this movie is that it gives some more depth to Nebula, and it's the point at which... 
I started to get her. She's not just mad at Thanos because he kept replacing pieces of her with machinery. She's not just mad at Gamora because she kept upstaging her. Thanos made them fight each other. And every time Nebula lost, which was all the time, he subjected her to the painful process of replacing a new piece of her, ostensibly to improve her. Uh, and like I said, Gamora never lost. She just never let up. So like, yeah, I kind of see why she's so pissed off at both of them. Peter presses Ego on why he left him and his mother. Ego tells him that if he doesn't return to his planet periodically, that this form he has chosen to take will wither and die, and that he couldn't bear to return to an Earth in which she wasn't alive. He then begins to teach Peter how to manipulate the celestial power that he was born with, and which he also derives from Ego's planet. We get a strong performance from Chris Pratt here as Peter pulls no punches, calling out his absentee father like, Oh no, don't you go telling me how painful it was for you. I had to watch her die. And I also like how Peter finally gets to play catch with his dad after 33 years. We get a brief conversation between Mantis and Drax in which, among other things, she reveals to him that Ego found her when she was in her larval state, orphaned on her homeworld, and took her in. She tells Drax that there's something she needs to tell him. But before she can, they're interrupted by Gamora. As Mantis leads them to their sleeping quarters, Gamora asks her if there are no other beings living on the planet. Mantis tells her that Ego is the planet. A dog wouldn't invite a flea to live on its back, would it? And you're not a flea, responds Gamora. Mantis tells her that she fulfills a purpose by helping her master sleep. Gamora presses her on what she was about to tell Drax before she walked in. Mantis says it was nothing. I continue to find the relationship between Drax and Mantis both amusing and heartwarming. The banter that results from the interplay of his absolute candor and her confusion is... I think it's very original. I mean, here he is telling her how ugly he thinks she is, but then he tells her it's not a bad thing because if someone tells you you're ugly and that they love you, they love you for who you are, and that beautiful people don't know who to trust. The complete lack of social grace and the unfettered honesty are, I think, very childlike in a very innocent sort of way. Even though I would argue that Mantis is pretty. Oh, make no mistake, Palm Clementief is hot. <laughs> I think Drax just obviously has. He has a different standard. Back on Yondu's ship, Yondu and Rocket are locked up for transport to the Kree and the Sovereign, respectively. Groot is forced into being a plaything for the crew's abuse and amusement. With the help of Kraglin, who never intended to start a mutiny, Groot locates a prototype control fin for Yondu's arrow in the captain's cabin and brings it to Yondu, who has now been freed by Kraglin along with Rocket. The four of them, but let's face it, mostly Yondu, proceed to systematically kill every single remaining member of the crew, blow up the ship, and escape in the command module, which detaches from the rest of the ship. Before he meets his demise, however, Taserface transmits Yondu's coordinates to the Sovereign. This may be the most James Gunn scene of either of the Guardians movies so far. A darkly humorous mass murder perpetrated by a blue guy with a flying thought-controlled arrow his XO, played by the director's brother, a talking raccoon, and a talking toddler tree. The arrow stuff is so cool. I know I've said it before, but that's really all I have to add. <laughs> it's a cool scene, but it is just like the other mass murder that took place on that ship earlier in the movie. It, it's pretty dark. You've got this toddler watching and participating in it, too. Peter and Gamora share a brief tender moment. But it ends rather abruptly when Gamora tells Peter that she thinks something is up with Ego and Mantis. This upsets Peter because it was her idea to go there in the first place. And now that they're here, and Peter has been reunited with his father, 
and is now established to be a demigod. He thinks Gamora wants to rain on his parade. Gamora steps outside to be alone when all of a sudden, Nebula arrives in her borrowed Ravager ship and attacks her relentlessly, chasing her into a cave where she crashes upon trying to follow Gamora in. One of the ship's guns shears off in the crash, so Gamora picks it up and pays Nebula back in kind by blowing what's left of her ship to smithereens. They both survive the explosion, but then Nebula continues to fight by engaging Gamora in hand-to-hand combat, and she's about to finish Gamora off, but backs down instead, claiming that she has bested her in combat at long last. Nebula lays it out on the table, telling Gamora that Thanos picked apart her body piece by piece because of her. You were the one who wanted to win, and I just wanted a sister. Sisters, huh? (laughs) I thought you might have something to say about that. I mean, I get it. I naturally, of course, prefer Natasha and Elena's relationship, which I think is pretty similar. The whole idea that, like, Natasha is the older sister first, and so that makes her, like, inherently better because that's just, like, how it feels. And then Natasha is the one who left and got this fun family and all this cool stuff and Yelena was left behind. So I think it is really similar, but I do think, I think again, it's just like with the Guardians movies is that they take all of the stuff that I don't like too far. Like the violence between Nebula and Gamora, too far. And some of the humor, too far. And what I would prefer is to take the serious aspects of the movie that further the plot, push that a little harder. Ego visits Peter in his quarters at nightfall and explains to him that so long as the light of that world burns, the two of them are both immortal and that Peter can make the same sorts of constructs and projections as he can. Mantis, listening into the conversation outside the room, turns away visibly frightened. She rushes off to Drax and tells him that he and the others are in danger and that Ego has gotten exactly what he wanted. Gamora and Nebula wander into a side cave and make a horrific discovery, a cavern full of skeletal remains. Get ready for an 800-foot statue of Pac-Man with Skeletor and Heather Locklear. 380s references in one sentence. Another reason I, I kind of like this movie. Rocket initiates a 700-jump flight to Ego's planet, which nearly kills everyone on board, so they can rescue Quill. Rocket claims he's doing it so he can lord it over Quill and prove that he's better than him. But Yondu's not buying it. He recognizes Rocket's tough-guy posturing and his deliberate attempts to drive people away from him because he says he used to be the same way, to hide his vulnerability after his parents sold him into slavery. Just as Rocket tries to hide his vulnerability after having been experimented on. Nothing like a little a-hole bonding, eh? I think that this scene is a little heavy-handed, but I get it. I kind of wish there were a way to get across the fact that Rocket is fronting without having Yondu outright say, you're fronting because XYZ, you know, show, don't tell. That's always my mantra, and they don't, they don't do that particularly well in this scene. Yeah, I think with Rocket in general, there's a lot of telling instead of showing. I think I would have to agree with you. I hadn't really thought about that until just now, but that makes that kind of makes sense. I do kind of notice that. It's always a lot of him acting out and then either him or someone else explaining why he's doing it. He explained it in the last movie. It's like, oh yeah, I got experimented on and had all these things put in me. Like while he was drunk or whatever, when they're on nowhere. And yeah, oh, very interesting. See, I learn new things about this movie every time I see it. Ego brings Peter back to his palace and reveals that his, and by extension Peter's, purpose is not just to seek out life for the sake of walking amidst it. Over thousands of years, he planted thousands of extensions of himself on thousands of worlds with the goal of spreading himself all over the universe 
until he exists everywhere. Everything will become him, but one celestial is not enough to accomplish this task, so he impregnated women all over the universe and hired Yondu to bring him the resulting offspring. He paid Yondu handsomely and told him that the children would not be harmed, but none of them were able to manifest the celestial power, so he killed them. Peter was the only spawn who could access the power, but Peter now has questions about this grand design. You said you loved my mother. Ego says he did, but he also realized that she would be a distraction, which is why he put the tumor in her head. Oh, snap. Wait, so all of the skeletons are Ego's dead kids? Yep. That's a lot. Like, again... I'm going to keep saying it. The content of the movie is so dark, and yet it's pasted over with all of this extra humor. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Like, Ego's doing a lot. At first, I thought maybe the skeletons were the people who lived on the planet before Ego, and he killed them. But turns out, it's way worse. Also, Yandu must have known either that Peter was the special chosen one or that Ego was killing all the kids, and then Yandu actually felt bad about it. First of all, yeah, there's like two mass murders in this movie and evidence of a third one that took place over the course of, you know, thousands of years. I mean, essentially a genocide. On a a cosmic scale, yeah, practically (laughs) a genocide. Not just a mass murder, but essentially a genocide of half-celestials. So, yeah, it's a pretty dark turn. As for Yondu, I don't know. I get the feeling that Yondu, you know, Stakar accuses him of having kind of looked the other way, taking these kids because it made him rich. Yeah, maybe the thought should have occurred to him that they were being hurt. I don't know. Yeah, you think human trafficking, you know, we're talking about people who are almost certainly being hurt. Well, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know. You kind of want Yandu to be innocent of that because it's kind of like, yeah, he's kind of a jerk and kind of scummy, but it's like that almost takes it to a new level of grossness and ugh. And you kind of don't want Yandu to go quite that far. An enraged Peter draws his guns and opens fire on Ego with an absolute fury, but to no avail. Ego is able to reconstitute his physical form very quickly and spears Peter with an energy tendril, forcibly siphoning off Peter's celestial energy so he can activate the seedlings of himself that he planted on all those worlds and turn them all into extensions of himself. The seedlings begin to consume the various worlds, including Earth, the one that he planted behind the Dairy Queen in Missouri. And just to twist the knife a bit, Ego takes Peter's Walkman and crushes it in his bare hands. Okay, for a moment, let's forget that Ego is using Peter to terraform thousands of planets into himself. He's done two things that, to Peter, are almost as bad. He's murdered his mother and destroyed the Walkman, his one most important connection back to her. This one being has single-handedly destroyed much of Peter's life. And again, this is actually pretty dark. Like, Peter is literally being tortured by his own father. Not just emotionally, but physically being tortured. He's being forced to contribute to something that he doesn't want to and never wanted to in the first place. His whole life is crashing down around him again in a super terrible way. And it just doesn't fit with the rest of the back-and-forth silly humor. Like, what is the thing with Drax in a couple minutes where Peter puts him in the jetpack and he's like oh my nipples like (laughs) that just doesn't fit with these other really intense things that are happening in the movie like i know we have the guardians together in not endgame but we do infinity war in infinity war for some reason that fits better and i don't know if it's i agree i don't know if it's just that i don't maybe i don't like james gunn's writing like i don't know maybe i prefer the writer's for Infinity War better? James, James Gunn is very edgy. Uh, you know, that's just kind of how he's always been. Because he's a I think very edgy guy. Because I think their humor fits 
way better with the rest of the Avengers, Mm -hmm. but the way the humor's written in this movie doesn't cut it for me. James Gunn likes edgy. He really had to rein it in. Guardians of the Galaxy 1 was like the tamest movie he's ever made. It was a hit and all, but I think maybe he felt he had license to push things a little bit, and that's why he made this one so dark. Apparently too dark for some of us. <laughs> well, no, I want it to be darker. I want you, did, it, you, d- you just I, didn't want the, the humor. I didn't of... like the way the humor was written. I want it to be dark. I said that at the beginning that I would prefer for it to be dark and less humor. Because I think the humor was bad. <laughs> It'd be interesting. Maybe we should both watch The Suicide Squad, since that's James. That's the, the film James Gunn worked on right before he started shooting Guardians 3. We should watch that and see. No, isn't that we... the one with Jared Leto? He was in Suicide Squad, the, the original version, which nobody liked. This is sort of the redo of that. I don't think Leto is in that one at all. This is the one with, uh, what's his name? John Cena. I don't want to have to watch another movie that Jared Leto is in, frankly. So I don't think he's in The Suicide Squad. That's as close as I'll get to mentioning Venom, because isn't he Morbius, Morpheus? Morbius, which the, is living va- the living vampire. Venom adjacent. <laughs> Venom adjacent. There we you got, go, uh, I did it. Emily got her, Emily, ding, 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 ding. Emily got her Venom I reference did it. in. There are people who do request Venom drops in every episode. Oh, your Twitter friends? I get friends? messages from them, yes. All right, Emily's friends, there's your Venom reference. I hope you're happy. I think y'all are weird, but, you know, you're listening to our podcast, so I appreciate that. Mantis reveals Ego's plan to Drax, Gamora, and Nebula. They make contact with Rocket, who, along with Groot and Yondu, are on their way down to the surface in an old construction craft. They all converge on the palace and temporarily knock Ego out of commission, long enough to regroup and figure out what to do. Peter and Mantis tell the others that Ego's brain is under the surface of the planet. If they destroy that... Ego and his seedlings will die. They board Yandu's craft and start drilling into the planet. Yandu tells Peter that once he realized what happened to the rest of Ego's children, he couldn't just hand Peter over to him. That's why he didn't deliver him to Ego as a child. Not because he was skinny and good for thieving. See? I mean, maybe he didn't know about all the other kids getting systematically killed. But Yandu's not totally... He's still a jerk, but he's not totally a jerk. As if things couldn't get worse. While all of this is going on... A massive fleet of Sovereign attack drones jump into orbit above Ego's planet. Remember them? (laughs) Commanded by Aisha herself, and this fleet is homing in on the batteries. Kraglin tries to warn Yandu, but his ship is too far below the surface of the planet to pick up the transmission. The ship arrives at Ego's core, and they begin using the ship's lasers to blast away at it. But they are interrupted by the Sovereign fleet who have found their way under the surface. During the ensuing battle, the ship's weapons are disabled, and Drax, Gamora, and Nebula are knocked off the ship and land on one of the structures near the core. Ego's projection attacks them. Mantis is not sure she can use her abilities to put him to sleep unwillingly, but Drax encourages her and tells her he believes in her. She is able to put Ego to sleep, but she is not sure for how long. Drax, caught in a rare lie, says he can't believe Mantis did it quote, as weak and skinny as she is. (laughs) Rocket fashions a bomb out of the Sovereign's batteries and a detonator. If they plan it and set it off at the core, it will destroy not only the core, but the entire planet as well. Peter, Rocket, and Groot jetpack down to the core to plant the bomb, but the only way for it to work is to plant it directly on Ego's brain, which they can't get to because Quill and Rocket won't fit through the natural openings in the core. So they give the bomb to Groot to plant. Yay, let's give a bomb to a baby and let him plant it and hope he doesn't accidentally blow us all to kingdom come. It's like Peter says, when you're out of good ideas, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, especially a baby whose receptive communication is 
less than perfect. That was another another scene that uh, was in the original trailer with Rocket trying to explain to Groot how to set off the bomb. It's like he repeats the same thing three times, and Groot keeps, I am Groot, yeah, I am Groot, yeah, I am Groot. No! With the generator of Yondu's craft still offline, the Sovereign are about to blow it up until Nebula hooks herself up to the ship as a power source long enough to power up the weapons and destroy all the Sovereign ships. The craft then explodes, but Quill, Yondu, and Nebula are able to safely make it to the surface and rejoin their comrades while Groot continues to make his way towards Ego's brain. At this point, I just have to interrupt with, A Mary Poppins, y'all! I didn't do that very well, sorry. With the bomb, hopefully, going off in about six minutes, and with Ego bearing down on the Guardians again, Yondu orders Kraglin to land the ship. Peter removes his jetpack and puts it on Drax so he can take Mantis to the ship. Ego creates fissures in the surface of the planet, and Gamora falls through one of them. But Nebula jumps after her and catches her, grabbing hold of a cliffside and climbing up. They ride a rising stone column back up to the surface. Ego continues attacking others with energy tendrils, and starts to consume them with the planet's surface itself. He spears Peter again and resumes siphoning the celestial energy from him to activate his seedlings again. Before he is consumed, Yandu yells to Peter that he doesn't use his head to fly the arrow. Suddenly, Peter gets it. He has the same celestial power that Ego has, so he uses it to fight back. You shouldn't have killed my mom and squished my Walkman. This distracts Ego enough for him to loosen his grip on the rest of the Guardians so they can escape. Groot makes it to Ego's brain and successfully plants the bomb, activating the five-minute timer. And here we get a reprise of the chain, only this time the Guardians are coming together instead of splitting up. I see what you did there, James Gunn. We also get to see Peter and Ego having one of those balletic midair fights like Neo and Agent Smith in The Matrix or Superman or something. Yeah, this was a really good scene. I liked it. That's all. <laughs> Rocket and Groot find Yondu and try to coax him into returning to the ship with them, but Yondu declines, insisting he needs to stay behind for Quill. Rocket gives him a spacesuit and a jetpack before he and Groot return to the ship. When he gets back, there's less than a minute before the bomb will detonate. No time to go back for Peter. As they grapple one last time, Ego tells Peter that if he dies, Peter will become mortal, and be just like everyone else. What's so wrong with that, Peter says. The bomb detonates, Ego's humanoid projection disintegrates, and the planet self-destructs around Peter, now without the power of the Celestials. Out of nowhere, Yondu flies in with the jetpack given to him by Rocket and grabs Peter. They begin to fly back to the ship, which is now in orbit. He may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. I'm sorry I didn't do none of it right, but I'm damn lucky you was my boy. He then slaps the spacesuit onto Peter while he continues, his own self unprotected from the vacuum of space, to fly them towards the ship. Peter can do nothing but watch as he loses his second father, the one who actually cared for him, mere moments after losing his birth father. I guess that is one way to make up for being extra super crummy to a kid for most of his life. And I mean, at least Yondu wasn't the one who killed his mom. Gamora and Nebula reconcile, Gamora implicitly asking for forgiveness as she was young and trying to survive and didn't consider what Thanos was doing to Nebula. She asks Nebula to stay with them, but Nebula insists on continuing her self-appointed mission to kill Thanos. Yondu is cremated according to Ravager tradition. Kraglin gives Peter an old Microsoft Zune MP3 player with earbuds and a 300-song capacity that Yondu picked up at a junker shop to give to Peter at some point in the future. I never got a Zune, but I remember they were super, super popular when I was in middle school. 
I had one of those MP3 players that had a radio connection, and it also had about 10 minutes worth of space for recording stuff straight off the radio. And it was also one of those MP3s with the little clips that you carried that had the individual singles off of records that you could like slide in. See, I must have totally missed this. I had to look up Zune. I had no idea what a Zune was when I saw this movie. Did I miss this? The iPod was and continues to be king. I didn't even realize that there was even remotely any other compet- any competitors. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think it the was... Zune the Zune didn't last very long, but... Right before the iPod. Because I went from a CD player, like a portable CD player that I carried around with me, to this mp3 player to an ipod the original ipod came out like 2001 or something like that and i think I, I did a little bit of digging the zune came out like like 2007 or 2008 oh. and there was and it was discontinued about five years later like around 2013 i couldn't tell you the name of what i had it was red and it played the radio and i remember i recorded um candy shop by 50 cent off the radio Peter gives Craglin Yondu's arrow, reconstructed by Rocket after the fight. Having heard from Rocket about Yondu's noble sacrifice, a funeral flotilla of Ravager ships, led by Stakar, arrives to formally pay tribute to Yondu and restore his honor. Also in attendance are other members of the original Guardians of the Galaxy in the comics, including Ving Rhames as Charlie 27 and Michelle Yeoh in her first MCU appearance as Alita O'Gord. Gamora quietly admits to her feelings for Peter. Drax tells Mantis that she is beautiful, on the inside. As Rocket watches the Ravager funeral, a tear rolls down from his eye. Wow, there's a lot to take in there. I think they teeter on the brink of going too far with the family motif. It's not as ham-fisted as, you know, say, the Vin Diesel Fast and Furious movies. It's a little heavy. Nonetheless, I think it works pretty well. And so, we get the end credits with Cheap Trick's Surrender playing. There are several mid-credits scenes intercut here. We see Kraglin trying to work the arrow and accidentally spearing Drax in the shoulder. We then see Stakar reuniting with several former teammates, including Charlie 27, Alita O'Gord, Martinex, Krugar, and Mainframe voiced by Miley Cyrus in an uncredited cameo. The music reverts to the George Clinton funk classic Flashlight by Parliament, and we see Aisha presenting a new sovereign birthing pod that will produce a new artificial being to destroy the Guardians, and he will be called Adam, which is no doubt a reference to Adam Warlock, who will be played by Will Powder in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in the summer of 2023. The music shifts over to Guardians Inferno, an original song by composer Tyler Bates, and featuring none other than David Hasselhoff. It's meant to be a send-up of the disco version of the Star Wars theme by Miko back in the late 70s, which we had on a 45 record back in the day. We see Peter going into teenage Groot's room and telling him to clean up and stop playing video games all the time. My son is 12, and yes, this resonates with me completely, by the way. Finally, we see Stan Lee continuing his cameo from earlier in the film, as he conveys to a group of watchers his experiences on Earth. That time, I was a Federal Express man. And that is the film. This is the part of the show where we talk about characters and actors. Starting with, of course, Chris Pratt as Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord. For purposes of this discussion, we'll endeavor to keep our comments about Chris Pratt relevant to his performance in the film and try not to meander into his political leanings his religious beliefs what church he belongs to or the fact that he married a schwarzenegger he's got some pretty heavy stuff to deal with in this film and i think he does a great job we see peter trying to juggle being the leader of the team 
and have to deal with all the various personality clashes. We see him trying very hard to start a fire between him and Gamora. And most importantly, we see him dealing with some pretty significant daddy issues. Initially, he's really conflicted about meeting Ego and understandably has some trust issues with regard to him. But the appeal of finally having his father is undeniable, especially when it also means you have the power of a god. But then he comes to the realization of who Ego really is and that he killed his mother. And it's like you said earlier, Emily, his entire world just comes crashing down. Just as that's happening, he comes to the realization that Yondu was his father figure the whole time. And then he dies. So, you know, Peter takes a lot of traumatic turns in this film. I guess the payoff is that he finally gets Gamora in the end, but man, the road to that is just really hard. Peter's reactions to all of this feel... I think quite genuine. I think that's a credit to Chris Pratt. He knows this character very well and knows how to inhabit him. So this movie came out in... 2017. 2017. When did the Jurassic Park... Like Jurassic World? Yeah. The ones that Chris Pratt are in. Jurassic World, the first one, came out in 2015. The summer after Guardians of the Galaxy 1. The times that I've seen Chris Pratt act, I think my favorites are the Jurassic World movies. Because... I, I like how dark those are. Like, I like how serious he is. And I think, like, yeah, he's funny. Like, I think he personally has a really good, quiet humor. Mm-hmm. And I think because the way movies are, like, you can't really have a quiet humor. You have to have a loud humor, especially these movies, mm-hmm. as we've talked about. I think that's what I like more is that I like that, like you said, he can inhabit this character really well. And I think he did the dark parts and the humor really well. But again, I like the dark parts better. When we did the first Guardians review, we talked about he used to just be like the funny fat guy. And now he's slim, fit, super serious superhero. But I think he's good at both. He had to play the funny stuff and the serious stuff in this movie, regardless of whether or not he wanted to or whether anyone likes it that was it that was his job and he did it really well he still gets in the jokes especially earlier in the film <laughs> like when Gamora is chewing them out on Bearheart for if you've been flying the ship with what's between your ears instead of what's between your legs we wouldn't be in this mess if what was between my legs was another hand I would have totally landed that ship <laughs> it's such a Peter Quill slash Chris Pratt thing to say and yet all the stuff with Ego when he realizes that this dude murdered your mom and has destroyed your life and he's just pissed he's royally pissed he plays that really well and then when Yondu dies I mean he's horrified he's absolutely horrified that this is happening to him I guess if you need someone to do that weird lanky hybrid of darkly serious and humorous and funny and all that I guess you get Chris Pratt because he can do it I think another thing about this is when we talked about the first Guardians movie I was like oh so this is just Avengers in space and I kind of pegged Peter Quill as, and essentially by, you know, by extension, Chris Pratt as Captain America, like the space version Captain America. And I was definitely wrong because I think he is more like Tony Stark. He's definitely more like Tony. Yeah, like he doesn't have the background, the same background, obviously. Although I guess if your dad's a celestial, you kind of do have a similar, like the space version of Tony Stark. Like everything is there. But again, I would say like, Tony Stark's humor is better. There are so many jokes with Tony Stark that happened so quick and they're not so loud about it that it takes you a second to be like, oh, yeah, that was a joke. Like that was a, a meant to be a ha ha funny. And he was just like steamrolling on ahead when these one, it's like, 
they want to make sure you know it was a joke. Yeah. And so they're going to really hammer that it was a joke. Robert Downey Jr. is very good at kind of the subtle slipping things under, under his breath that you might otherwise not catch. Chris Pratt as himself, not as Peter Quill, is really good at that too. He just didn't get that chance to do that in this movie for whatever reason. Zoe Saldana as Gamora. I think Zoe Saldana is great in this role once again, unquestionably. But compared to the last movie, I feel like she doesn't have a lot to do in this one. Obviously, the sister stuff with Nebula is always great. And the action stuff at the beginning is really cool. But aside from that, I mean, what else did she do in this movie besides yell at the other Guardians when they're being dumbasses? And I don't have, like, any of the fancy terminology for this or, like, what it really is. But... A lot of female roles, especially in movies like this, like superhero kind of movies, are extra capable kind of roles. Gamora is not allowed to be sensitive or Gamora is not allowed to have problems that aren't already acceptable. Like it's, like it's acceptable for her to have a rough relationship with her sister because everybody has rough relationships with their family. But Gamora is not allowed to be weak. Or to be anything less than the smartest person in the room. And Natasha's that way, too. Like, I have that problem with Natasha. That, for the most part, Natasha's not allowed to, like, actually have feelings. Like, they're both allowed to have feelings, but only in the way that is acceptable. Because if Gamora was any less, I can just imagine that if Gamora wasn't as fully realized, 100% capable, super smart, all all these dumb men, like, people wouldn't like her as much, even okay. though that would be more realistic. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the presence of Mantis, we'll talk about her in a moment, you know, kind of playing the understated, kind of shy, reserved, demure member of the group. Well, and I think it's, we talked about the, this with Cherokee in a sort of different situation, that when there's so few examples, you're really only allowed to do certain things. Mm-hmm. So when there are so few women already in a genre, there's like two things you can be. You can be like the sort of bimboish, dumb, oh, I don't know what we're doing here kind of thing. Or you can mm-hmm. be super duper capable and have no problems. Like even the thing where she like doesn't want to show her emotions. Like mm-hmm. even that is another version of this must be strong, stoic, powerful yeah, you touch me and I'll break your jaw. Yeah. yeah. But if you look at any movie that is traditionally like male dominated, there's always a female character that's like that. And she's usually the only female character that exists, mm-hmm. like in any meaningful capacity. When that probably wouldn't be the case in real life, you know, because there would be more women in real life. People are different. People, people are, are different. People, people are complicated, as I'll get to again momentarily. Dave Bautista as Drax. I've probably said this too many times already, and here I'm going to say it again. I think this movie is a coming out party of sorts for both Drax and Dave Bautista. You know, he did the the Destroyer really well in the first movie, but we got so much more of the humor uh, and, and so much more emotional, heartfelt stuff in this film. A part of me was kind of dubious about his acting ability before, but he proved to me in this one that he has some legit range and some legit comic timing. It's a very deadpan delivery, but you got to be good to make that deadpan delivery actually come off as funny. And he does that. I love it when he gets really excited and lets loose that amazing belly laugh of his. You know, I'm looking forward to talking about him more when we get around to reviewing Infinity War. And uh, of course, we'll see him again in both Thor Love and Thunder and in Guardians Volume 3. He has said publicly that uh, once Volume 3 finishes shooting later this year, that he'll be done with the character. In fact, James Gunn says that we'll be done with 
pretty much all the Guardians characters after Volume 3. Not quite sure what that means, but I guess we'll find out next summer. And that's kind of a shame, but, uh, you know, hopefully he goes out on top. Vin Diesel as Groot. Not much for me to say here. Obviously, they put Vin's voice through a machine to modulate it and make him sound like he's three. Honestly, I think his best work in this film is in the mid-credits scene when he's a teenager. Uh, I like the sarcastic tone of his, which is very spot-on. You know, I am Groot. <laughs> this sounds like my son sometimes. Uh, and even though Vin probably had very little to do with this, may have referenced this earlier in the show, how Baby Groot slaps people around with his tiny little baby branches whenever he's mad at them. I don't know, I just find that really funny, just running after people and going, Aah! and slap, 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 slap. I definitely prefer Baby Groot to older Groot. Like, I feel like I remember a lot of people being really obsessed with Baby Groot and I didn't understand, but now I kind of do. I think my favorite is when they're trying to get the prototype fin. Mm-hmm. And it's like 17 times of, yeah. <laughs> no, it's this. No, it's this. Hey, no, it's this. And Groot's just like, okay, I'm going to do it again. And like, I know a three-year-old. And granted, I think if my three-year-old tried as many times as Groot tried and then was still told that it was he was wrong, the three-year-old I know would have burst into tears. <laughs> but <laughs> Groot's obviously a different kind of three-year-old and was just like, all right, I'll go do it again. I'll get there eventually. Well, the, the, the Mr. Blue Sky thing in the opening titles, there's this massive fight with this, you know, giant space creature going on all around him and he's completely oblivious to it. And he's just dancing around having a good time, you know, Drax falls near him and he kind of quickly reproduces the the I want you back moment in the end of the first film. Yeah, he's pretty funny. He is pretty funny. Bradley Cooper as Rocket. If the goal was to make Rocket even more of a dick in this film than in the last one, I think he succeeded. He goes out of his way to insult as many people as possible in this movie, and I can't help but wonder if it was all solely meant to build up to his chat with Yondu and Yondu's subsequent death. Because I will say... If I didn't know any better, Rocket took Yandu's death harder than Quill did. Either way, I felt it hard to feel as sympathetic towards Rocket this time around as I did in the first film. And I don't think that's Bradley Cooper's fault. I think he did just fine. I just felt like his character arc this time around wasn't as compelling as before. Yeah, I didn't really like Rocket in this one. I think it's just because, kind of like what you said, we already got it. Like, we already get it. We already know. We already know Mm -hmm. why Rocket is the way he is, Mm -hmm. and it felt like in this movie they were just like hey remember this is why rocket's a jerk it's like yeah i'm because he's because he's suffering inside rocket is suffering inside capable of remembering the last movie that i saw i do have (laughs) object permanence thank you michael rooker as yandu udanta james gunn has said in a number of interviews how much he loves michael rooker he absolutely gushes over him and it kind of shows in this movie yandu has a lot to do in this one I mean, there are whole sections in the middle of the film that basically belong to him. In fact, I have a theory that this film is as much about him as it is about Peter. It was Yondu all along. (laughs) Um, It was Yondu all along. (laughs) Isn't that the music? I'm not a big fan of musical numbers, so I don't remember the Agatha Harkness, the tune of the Agatha Harkness song. I gotta admit, there is something strangely charismatic about Rooker as Yondu. As much of a jerk as he is, Yandu, that is. He he has a heart. And I think Michael Rooker has this brilliantly subtle way of showing us how Yandu struggles with that. It's just like he tells Rocket. He had a very hard life growing up. His own parents sold him into slavery. And you know, obviously that's gonna harden someone 
something awful. So it must be really difficult for him to process certain emotions, perhaps any emotions, I don't know, because to show any sign of vulnerability means, to him, showing weakness. I mean, I know a few people who are really turned off by them turning Yondu into any sort of hero. I, I don't mind it at all. People are complicated. And Yandu is no exception. Being a jerk doesn't preclude you from doing some incredibly generous and selfless things. Yeah, I think the idea that Yandu wouldn't have at least a little bit of a heart is kind of silly. I mean, again, they even say that, like, Yandu, at the expense of his crew, supports Peter at times. Like, mm -hmm. that's a big problem that the crew points out. And it's like, well, there's a reason for that. You know, we find it out later, of course. But I think it might just be sort of a discredit to Yondu, like for people to dislike him because he's not just like actually a baddie, I think is probably just because there was no way to know <laughs> until this movie mm -hmm. that he actually wasn't that much of a jerk. Right. They hint at it a little, you know, in bits and pieces in the first movie by him kind of letting Peter off the hook and helping out and so forth. But yeah, it's all laid out on the table this time around. Karen Gillan as Nebula. This is the film where we really get to the root of Nebula's anger with Gamora and subsequently with Thanos. What can I say? I I really love Nebula's rage. Karen Gillan does angry so well. Just like Yondu and Rocket, maybe even more so, she's been hurt horrifically in her life. And her anger towards Gamora is uh, not entirely misplaced, I don't think. I feel some empathy for her in this movie. Uh, and I'll feel that for her even more so once we get around to Infinity War. I think another thing about, I guess not specifically the sister thing, but in general, when you are in a situation like Nebula's in, she knows that her anger is specifically towards Thanos because it's Thanos' fault. But... Thanos isn't there. And, like, you know mm -hmm. who is there is the person that Thanos orchestrated to be there. Like, Thanos orchestrated it that Nebula, if she ever realized what was going on, would be mad at Gamora and not him. And, of course, she knows now that, it, and she knew then that it was Thanos, but she can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. But you know who she can do something about is Gamora. Even Peter. Like, Peter's anger was probably mostly at his dad for never being around. But who did he have to let it out on? Yondu. Gamora's an easier target, metaphorically and literally. You know, if they're fighting each other all the time, it's Thanos is pitting them against each other in, you know, cage matches or whatnot. Kurt Russell as Ego. Once again, our veteran actor is playing the villain. Kurt Russell, who I like a lot, has been a staple of film and television since he was 12 years old. In fact, he was in a ton of Walt Disney movies in the 70s during their, you know, dark years. But it paved the way for his superstardom in the 80s and the 90s. Ego is never going to be in the elite pantheon of MCU antagonists like Killmonger and Loki and Zemo. But, uh, but by the same token, he's not Darren Cross either. In the comics, Ego is Ego the Living Planet. Literally a living, sentient planet. Uh, in fact, in the comics, he looks much like that image you see of him in the movie of the planet, what looks like a face plastered on it. Admittedly, I don't know much about the comics character, but I do like Kurt Russell's ego because there's a certain amount of relatability to him. He starts out all alone and is trying to figure out his purpose in the universe. I mean, who hasn't thought about that? We all go through that at least once in our lives. Of course, I like to think that most of us don't come to the realization that our purpose is to propagate ourselves all over the universe to the exclusion of all other life. But, you know, I guess that's why his name is Ego. <laughs> I think Kurt Russell's energy and enthusiasm allow him to grow that role into to more than perhaps it actually deserves to be. I don't think that character should have been as good as 
Kurt Russell made him out to be. Do you think Ego knew his name, or do you think he named himself? I don't know anything about Celestials. Do they name themselves, or do they come out fully realized knowing their names and stuff? That's a good question. It just kind of implied that Celestial just kind of came about, so... I don't know. Like, it's pretty obvious why his name is Ego. It's not that hard to <laughs> yes. piece it together. Because Stan Lee and Jack but, Kirby. <laughs> but then it makes me wonder, did he name himself Ego? Or did whoever created the Celestials, were they like, yeah, this one, Ego? Only the cosmos knows. Palm Clementief as Mantis. The Guardians of the Galaxy needed two things at this point, I think. A, someone who was a lot more low-key and reserved than everyone else. And B someone with a more supernatural ability. And fortunately, they get both in Mantis. I, I really like her. You know, she has this almost shy demeanor, which is a refreshing break from the rest of the Guardians, who always seem to have things dialed up to 11. And it's also nice to have an empath in a group full of selfish jerks. And although those CGI-enhanced eyes and antennae certainly help, I love how expressive her face is. She can wordlessly convey so much emotion just by the way she moves her head and her mouth. And of course, I love her relationship with Drax. I've said that probably too many times already, but I stand by that. He's socially inept and bombastic while she's socially inept and quiet. <laughs> and it just works out so well for me somehow. They, they both have amazing comic timing. They have chemistry and they just crack me up. I kind of forgot until just now that a lot of the Guardians don't really have special powers. Drax is super strong, but also Drax could just be like another strong dude. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. But like Peter and Peter does have powers, but it takes him a really long time to realize them. And then doesn't he essentially he's lost them now. He's, he's lost them, yeah. Yeah. Rocket doesn't have any special powers except that he's a talking raccoon. <laughs> um Groot's a tree, so I guess that's a power. Gamora doesn't really have any powers, and Nebula doesn't really have any powers. I mean, it's it's kind of implied that Gamora is like of like an exceptional fighter. Yeah, but you I know. mean, so is Natasha. Yeah, I mean, Natasha's yeah, yeah. still human. Right. Nebula was you know enhanced artificially by her dad. Yeah, so I like that you pointed out that she has a more supernatural ability because of the empathy thing. And also, that's one of my favorite psychic abilities. Empath? But I, I especially like it when you can use it against the other person. So not like mind control, but you can like affect their emotions. Because mm -hmm. she can like make someone go to sleep. And it's like, yeah, can you make someone angry? Like, can you pull a Wanda? You know, I wonder mm -hmm. if we would ever get to see that of her like actually affecting someone else's emotions and sort of controlling them through that the way she can control them to sleep. Sean Gunn as Craglin Obfonteri. It didn't dawn on me until this most recent rewatch of the movie, but Craglin kind of has a lot to do this time around. I think I like him for the same reason I like Mantis. Amidst this crew of, you know, psychopathic ravagers, you know, Yondu included perhaps, it's nice to have the contrast provided by Craglin. He's that cool, calm, reliable presence that, that gets the job done without any flash or fanfare or drama. And that's why I think it's kind of a big deal, once again, when he publicly calls Yondu out back on Bearheart. He wouldn't do it unless he really, really felt something was not right. And Sean Gunn just seems, he seems like a really versatile actor. You know, most of the time he's just kind of there, but when he's calling out Yondu and he's at Yondu's funeral and the other Ravagers show up and he gets like all excited and he's like, yes, yes, it demonstrates that he's got some layers to him and uh, that he's not just a yes man. And I like that a lot. I, I like Craglin a lot. 
A quick note on the music of the film. First of all, I, I think Tyler Bates' score for this film is a lot better than his score for the first film. I think it's more ambitious, less monotonous than the first score. Second, as much as I like the selection of pop songs from the first film, I love the songs Gunn picked for this film. It's a, such an eclectic mix. you got ELO, George Harrison doing My Sweet Lord, which is from one of my favorite albums of all time. Glenn Campbell, we had the 45 of that song too, uh, Southern Nights, when I was growing up. Cheap Trick, Parliament, Sam Cooke, Fleetwood Mac, Cat Stevens, not to mention, you know, all the more obscure stuff like Lakeshore Drive and uh, the, the Wham Bam Shangalang song when the Sovereigns show up at Ego's Planet. I like that soundtrack a lot. So that concludes our review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Stay tuned. Coming up in, uh, I don't know, three or four more weeks. I'm very excited because finally, finally, finally getting around to one of my all-time favorite Marvel movies, Doctor Strange. Finally getting into the rotation here on We Can Do This All Day. Uh, So very much looking forward to that. This is one that I have almost finished. Almost finished. Another one for Emily to cross off the list. I think I gave up around like 20 minutes to the end. But right it was things years are getting... ago, so I right don't when... remember. Right when things are getting good. Well, we're going to talk about Doctor Strange. I'm sure we'll address you know things like Tilda Swinton's casting and so forth, uh, since that's kind of a big deal in this movie. Still one of my favorite Marvel films for a number of reasons, uh, many of which I've already talked about, and we'll talk about again in just a few more weeks. Until then, thank you all very much for listening. Have yourselves a good night, and we'll see you around. Good night. You're still dancing. I was thinking, it was Yondu all along. Cha cha cha.